Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I wanted to say thank you to Don for filling the pulpit last week. What a gift for those who can step in, particularly at the last moment. And, uh, I am glad to be back with you, and we're going to be continuing our work through the letter of First uh, Thessalonians, looking at chapter 4 this morning. This topic is relevant to us. We're talking about putting off idleness in brotherly love. We'll be looking particularly at chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. We celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, and as part of that supper, we contemplated the act of obedience of Christ. We contemplated the work, the labor that he engaged in on our behalf. And it's that labor, that work that Christ has engaged in, that, that actually helps us to think more clearly about our labor in this world. There are, there are matters that we will discuss this morning that bear on general morality and general conduct of life. And there is a way in which we can hold these things out to one, or, one another disconnected from the truths of the gospel. And we can call one another to obedience to do that which is right and fail to see that the proper motivation for doing that which is right is actually the gospel. It's Christ and what he's done. And even in this matter of idleness, Lord willing, what we'll see is that it is because of Christ's labor, Christ's work, that we ought to work with gladness in our hearts and gratitude to the Lord and with contentment toward him. So that's our hope this morning as we look together at this text. And as I said, this is a relevant topic because there is a way in which there are matters, there are circumstances in our culture that have allowed for an idleness to take hold in our, in our culture. We have resources that allow us to become dependent, or we have resources and abilities to slow down our labors that, that free us up in ways that are not good. So these are matters for all of us this morning, and particularly for our culture in this cultural moment. Of course, Paul was dealing with circumstances this church was dealing with, but nothing changes over time, right? The human heart doesn't change. And so God's word is just as relevant then as it is for you and me today. So with that, let's look to the scriptures. You follow along while I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-12. through 12. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, as we look to your word now, we want to confess that you have given this word to us as your word. Lord, help us to hear it as your word. Help me to preach it as your word. Father, would you give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech so that I might accurately exposit this scripture to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we look to you as not only the one who inspired this word, but the one who is at work in our hearts, who is empowering us and strengthening us through this word. 
So Lord, would you use it to all of our edification this morning and to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our main point for our text this morning is this. We have been taught by God to love one another and to care for each other's needs. But idleness takes advantage of this love and does harm to Christian witness. So the Lord has taught us, as we'll see, to love one another. And that love works itself out practically in the way that we care for each other, especially when there are needs. But there is an idleness that can take shape, an idleness that ends up taking advantage of that love and does harm to the Christian witness because it it betrays a misunderstanding of the labors that Christ has exerted on our behalf and how we take hold of that work and how we labor as a result. So we're talking about putting off idleness and brotherly love, and we're going to look at this in three elements. First, we're going to ask the question, or seek to answer the question, why didn't Paul need to write to them about brotherly love? He says in this section, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So this raises the question, why, why didn't Paul need to write to them about this subject? Now, obviously, he does write to them about this subject, right? But So there's this tension between this understanding that Paul has that, as he's going to say, they are God-taught, they don't need instruction, and yet, and yet, they need instruction. And this is us, too, isn't it? We don't need instruction on this, as we'll see, and yet, we need instruction. So... Why? Why does Paul say this? And I want to point out what he says here just by way of introduction or continued introduction. He says, as to the love of the brethren. He's talking about this brotherly love that he, he understands that the church has been taught to practice and should practice. Now, this literally says, as to the Philadelphia. So if you understand that Philadelphia, the city, that that name literally means the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love. Phila is the Greek word philos, or phileo is to love. And it has to do, and Delphi, it has to do with familial relationships, brotherly love, to love the brother. Why does Paul use this term instead of the more common term associated with love? You may understand that term to be the verb agapao, or agape, love. Why doesn't he use that term? Well, I think he does this for two reasons. Number one, because this concept of Philadelphia or this concept of brotherly love is a very strong point of interest and of pride, probably in the Thessalonian community itself, but in the broader culture. There is this sense in which this cultural moment that Paul is writing into where these people see themselves as loving them, them one another in a brotherly kind of way, having a brotherly kind of love. And this is connected, connected to what has been called Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. It is the brotherhood of Rome. It's the brotherhood of the empire. And so they took great pride in this brotherly love. And yet, if you read the, the philosophers of Paul's day, the secular writers of his day, you discovered that though they held that out as a value and had a lot of pride in it, well, the practice of it wasn't all that great. Now, this church, though, 
this church has been called to a kind of brotherly love that goes well beyond any association with an empire or any association with a group of people or a particular culture. This goes beyond and it actually speaks to the familial concepts that Paul has been addressing throughout as he talks about being infants, as he talks about loving them like a nursing mother, as he talks about being a father to them. And this concept of brother is actually used throughout this letter to remind us of our familial connection with one another. We are family, if you will. So why didn't they need instruction then? Well, because first of all, they were already God-taught. They were already God-taught. Paul says, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you because or for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, we might read that to say, for you yourselves are already taught by God to love one another. This is something that you already have had done. So there's no need for me to write to you because, and Paul literally says here, for you yourselves are God taught to love one another. This is actually the only time this word, it's a combination of theos and didaskas, God, theos, and didaskas, to teach. He puts these words together into one word. In other words, Paul creates a word here. Uh, It's not been used prior to this, and and it's taken up after Paul and only used in Christian writing. So this is a word of Paul's creation. They are God-taught. And this is why Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, look, you don't need for anyone to instruct you because you're God taught. But this is also why you and I don't need to be instructed in this because you and I are also God taught. That is, if we are in Christ. What was Paul referring? Well, Paul was actually referring probably most specifically to the teaching of Jesus himself. And so if we look, for example, in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, we read this. Now, one can come, no, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be God-taught. They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So notice that Paul or that Jesus is talking about those whom the father draws to him, those to whom the father has has poured out his covenant love and draws into relationship with him. All of those who are drawn to the father are taught of God, he says, and they shall all be taught of God. And he goes on to say, everyone who has heard and learned from the father. This is what Jesus is, uh, Jesus is understanding here of this, this reality of that, that, that everyone drawn to the Father, everyone who comes to know him will be taught of God, will be God taught. They will have heard the Father and they will have learned from the Father. But to what was Jesus referring? Well, Jesus, as you can see from that text, was actually quoting from the Old Testament. He was quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. Now, Paul, in his letter to Thessalonians, and much like many of his letters, actually relies 
uh, when he's writing to the Greeks, when he's writing to the non-Jews, he tends to rely more on the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So a little bit of history. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but it was also translated into Greek so that the people who were Hellenized and understood Greek but not Hebrew or Aramaic could also read it. So they translated into the Greek. That is called the Septuagint. And Paul often uses the Septuagint. He quotes from it when writing to non-Jews. And in that text, it says, all your sons will be taught of God. In other words, they will be God taught. Paul just puts those words together. But notice that the prophet says they will be taught of the Lord. They'll be taught of the Lord. But notice that he says, look at who he identifies as those who will be taught. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. And this is important because when we look at what Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, as to the love of the brethren. Or we might say, as to the love of the sons. As to the love of this family. As to the love of all of these sons, you will be taught of the Lord. You yourselves are God taught. Why is this important? Paul addresses the Thessalonian believers as part of the new covenant family of God who have been cleansed, renewed, taught of God and empowered by the spirit to live together as his redeemed people. Paul is thinking about the new covenant. He's thinking about the promise of God given to all of these people who will be taught by him. He has already referred to in indirectly to the cleansing, but he's talked about the pouring out of the spirit. Paul has in mind this brotherhood, this family that is brought together in the new covenant. It is a family brought together by God's work to redeem a people for himself and declare them to be his children by adoption. This is to whom Paul is talking. This is as to this brotherly love, as to this familial new covenant love, you don't have need to be, I don't need to write to you about it because you have been God taught. Well, this takes us to passages like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where we read specifically of the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Remember that Paul has told them to turn away from their idols to serve the true and living God earlier in this letter. To cleanse you from all of your filthiness, from from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. We don't have time to look at what Jeremiah says. But Jeremiah says in the same way that all of these in this new covenant will know God. They will have instruction from him. And Paul has been referring not only in this letter, but he refers in his other letters to the Gentiles in telling them about this work of God whereby they are cleansed of their sins, where they have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of trespasses because of what he has done. 
And he tells them of the inheritance that they have been given. He tells them of this of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit upon them, this awakening, this enlivening of spirit that teaches them what it means to be a follower of God, how it how it looks to live and follow him. This is the reality for believers. If you are in Christ, if you have entrusted your soul to him, this passage is true of you. You have been cleansed of all of your unrighteousness. You have been made clean. You have a new heart. You have been enlivened. You have been given of the Holy Spirit, empowered by him to do that which God has called you to do. And it's only by that power, it's only by first understanding the work of Jesus Christ and by embracing Him as our only hope, and it's only by that reality and all that it entails that we can hear Paul and obey Him and turn away from our idleness and work the works of God that He has called us to by His power. They didn't need instruction because love was already written on their hearts. The love of God, in fact, all of the commands of God were already written on their hearts, as Paul says, even of the unbeliever. He says, when Gentiles do instinctively the things of the law, they show that the law of God is written on their hearts. But how much more is this true for the new covenant family of God that is redeemed by him and enlivened by him? So they didn't need this instruction because they were already God taught and because they were already practicing. They were already practicing it. As we read now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. For indeed, you do practice it, or you are practicing it. And I think Paul is using an argument from the greater to the lesser here. You practice it toward all the brethren in Macedonia. You're not only looking at those around you who have need, but you're seeing the needs of those even beyond your own city, and you are reaching out and caring for them. And I think, Paul, it's as if to say, look, I see what you are doing. We've had reports of this love for the brethren, even in Macedonia. How much more can I assume that you are loving one another right there in Thessalonica? Right there, you are doing this already. So Paul is commending this church for practicing love toward one another. He says in... 1 Thessalonians 2 and then 3, we give thanks to God always for all of you, bearing in mind your labor of love. So even from the beginning of this letter, he's recognizing that they are living in love toward one another. Or he goes on in chapter 3 and verse 6, and he says, "Now, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your love. So Timothy came back and said, look, they love one another. And And their love goes beyond one another and out even to Macedonia. And we're told earlier, even to Achaia and other areas where there were people who were in need because likely because of famine. This church was already demonstrating an understanding of the bonds of brotherly love, love that moved them to care for one another, especially when there were physical needs. So this was a church that Paul could say, look, you're doing this. You, you are loving one another. And when needs arise, you're caring for one another. This is very commendable. And I would say this is a this is a commendation that would be true of Cornerstone. That as we look at this church and we think about our engagement with one another, 
I think we can commend this church to say, here's a church that is practicing love for one another. Here's a church that cares for each other, especially when there are needs among us. Praise God. But that leads us to the other question, to the second question. Why then did Paul go on to urge them to excel still more? So if they were already God-taught, if they're already practicing this, why go on to exhort them to excel still more in this love? And we read this, for example, in verses 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God. You are God-taught to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Why? Why does Paul feel it necessary to urge them to excel still more in this area of brotherly love? Well, first, because our sanctification is progressive, right? Our sanctification, by sanctification, we mean our growth in godliness, our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ's likeness. This this maturity that we as Christians experience and grow in our lives that, that, that growth is progressive. The, the scriptures, even Paul in this letter, describes them as children. Paul in Ephesians says we are children. And when we come, when you think of a child, a child has many good qualities, but those good qualities need to be cultivated. Those qualities need to grow and develop as they grow and develop. You and I were born into this new covenant family. We were born again into this new covenant family. And in a way, we were born in as children. In a way, we were born in with these wonderful qualities of God-given instruction and the enlivening of the Holy Spirit and all, all that's there and yet still in need of being raised up, still in need of having that cultivated and having it grow. And this is a lifelong process. As Paul says Look, I haven't arrived, as he says in Philippians. I haven't gotten there yet. If the Apostle Paul hadn't gotten there yet, I can be sure I'm not there yet. And and Paul says he wasn't going to get there until Christ redeems him finally. And neither will you. Our sanctification is progressive. For indeed, you do practice it, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now, Paul has said this before. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you, are, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And so here again, he's referring to this need for progressive growth, progressive sanctification. Remember Paul's prayer in chapter 3 at the end. Verses 11 and 12, Paul prays, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as you also do, just as we also do for you. So even in Paul's prayers, he is asking that the Lord be at work in them to cause these good things to grow to cause these good things to increase and even abound more and more. Why? To what end? That Christ may be exalted 
and the Father may be glorified seeing the good works of His people. Seeing His work in us displayed in outward ways that declares the power of the Gospel and gives glory to the Father. Because the standard of measure is the love of Christ, there will always be opportunity for more growth, won't there? If we understand that the standard of measure is the love of Christ, then how will we ever arrive in this life? Until we are fully redeemed. Until the redemption of our bodies takes place and God resurrects us and glorifies us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. How? Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is what we celebrated in the supper. We celebrated Christ's love for us. We celebrated Christ giving himself up for us in love. We celebrated him having given himself as an offering, as a sacrifice to God on our behalf. It was this love that moved him to lay down his life. And it's this love that moves us to love one another. And if that's the standard, when will we ever arrive at that? So we need to excel still more. By the power of God's grace, by his mercy and with his help, let's excel still more. You could say to this church, we are practicing it. Let's excel still more. And let's be praying as Paul did that this would increase and abound to the glory of Christ. Amen? So, why did Paul urge them to excel? Well, because our sanctification is progressive. But also, because some in the church were being selfishly idle and were taking advantage of this love. There were some in this Thessalonian community that were being idle. And as a result of their idleness, they had become dependent. And they were taking advantage of this care that this church had in meeting the needs of brothers and sisters. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So Paul, in this section, gives four statements, all led off by that one, to excel still more. And then he follows with three specific things that we'll look more at here in a bit. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, I want to point out to you something. Paul was addressing an idleness that resulted in dependence. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about those who were refusing to work. And as a result of their refusal to work, they were depending on others. Work with your hands so that you will not be in any need. Now, you understand here what Paul is addressing and what he's not addressing. He is addressing those who can and should work, he is not addressing those who cannot work. You understand that the reason Paul is actually giving this exhortation is because there are those who cannot work. 
There are those who are in legitimate need and it is right for the church to come and to help them. For those who are legitimately unable to work, it is right for the church to care for them. But there were those who for whatever reason, whether they were just simply saying, I can't work, or choosing not to work for other reasons, because they weren't working, they had become dependent. They were in need. And Paul is addressing them here. In chapter, and sorry, in the second letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul feels it necessary to raise this issue again because apparently his exhortations weren't heard and they weren't obeyed to the degree that he desired. And so he surfaces this again. He says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. There are some who are unwilling to work. Notice what Paul says. They're not to eat. Well, that's hard. What he's saying to this church is, look, you need to love your brother enough to withhold from him that which is feeding his idleness. He is taking advantage and you need to love him. He shouldn't eat. He needs to learn to work is what he's saying. If anyone is not willing to work, such persons we command to eat their own bread. Eat your own bread. Now look, the Thessalonians were loving and generous, but sung among them, were taking advantage by refusing to work. This church loved their brothers. And, and Paul needs to exhort them in this way because they look around at their brother who is in need and they say, look, he's hungry. He, he needs to eat, but he's idle. And so Paul needs to bring instruction to them to say, look, I understand you love them. You're generous. But do you understand that this brother is taking advantage of that love and needs correction? He needs to be exhorted. He needs to be commanded to labor with his own hands. Why is this such a matter of love? Why is this such a matter of love? Such persons we command to eat their own bread. You should think about that for a moment. Eat their own bread. Here's why this is a matter of brotherly love. Somebody has to work for the bread. Bread doesn't just materialize. It is labored for. When a person is dependent, that is dependent because of idleness, they are actually requiring others to work the work that they should be doing. They're asking others to labor over the bread so that they can eat it. Do you understand? This is a matter of love. Because the brother who's refusing to work and eating the other person's bread is not loving his brother. He's making him work. 
We'll come back to this in a bit. So why did Paul urge them to excel? Because some in the church were selfishly idle. And because this idleness was harming their testimony. This idleness was harming their testimony. As we read, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You see what he says there? So that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Paul is concerned about outsiders. Who are these outsiders? Well, these are non-Christians. These are people that are outside of this new covenant community. These are the unbelievers in and around the Thessalonian believers themselves. Observing their community. These are people on the outside looking in. Look, is it any less true today that the world watches the church closely to see how she engages? And and mainly for the purpose of bringing accusation against us? Paul is saying, look, you have a testimony here. And this testimony is being harmed by your refusal to work. These idle believers may have been depending on others outside the church. But in any case, their idleness was known and it reflected poorly on Christ who labored with his life. There is some, there are some, it's really unsure of how these people are being idle and the reason for their idleness There was a system of patronage at that time, but that that may or may not have been the case. They may have been relying upon outside sources for help, for dependence, refusing to work, but relying on assistance from outside the church. But regardless of what was going on, it's clear that those outside were watching and they were observing. And what Paul is saying is, look, Christ labored for you. Christ labored for you. He worked for you. He gave his life for you. And this ought to be your motivation to love your brother and labor in this world and honor Christ. And to not do so reflects poorly on the testimony of the church. So, why did Paul go on to urge them to excel still more was the second question. And then finally, what did Paul exhort them to do? Specifically, then, what did Paul exhort them to do? Well, as I've said, there are four, actually, to be a bit grammatical here for you, a bit of nerdy, there are four infinitive clauses here, and they're functioning like four commands. To this, to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this. Those four are to excel still more, to lead a quiet life, and attend to your own business, to work with your hands. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life is the second of these under the heading of excel still more in brotherly love. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands. These are the three specific exhortations that Paul gives to this church, and we need to look at each. So what did Paul exhort them to do? Well, first he exhorted them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life. We read specifically in this text that statement, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, the statement, make it your ambition, literally means make it a matter of honor. The word ambition has the word honor as a part of it. And the idea is to, to make it something honorable about you. To, to set a goal to be honorable. To make this your ambition 
to be honored in what you do, that which is right. So this is a matter of honor. It is a matter of doing that which pleases the Lord and reflects well on his church. Make it your ambition. Make it your ambition to do what? Well, to lead a quiet life. Lead a quiet life. What does Paul mean by this? Now, we know in 2 Thessalonians 3.12 that he says something very similar. He says, now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. There is that same word group, to work quietly or in quietness. Now, Paul uses this in his Thessalonian letter when he talks about praying for kings and those in authority that we might live a quiet life. Well, what's he talking about? Is he talking about not saying anything? Is everybody zip it? Just like go to work and don't, don't talk? Is that what he's talking about? Clearly not. Clearly he cannot be saying this because we are exhorted many times to speak. But speaking the truth in love, we have to grow up in, every, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love, right? So we're not to be quiet in that sense. Rather, we are to speak for sure. So what does he mean? Paul is referring to a quietness of heart that reveals gratefulness for the work to be done and contentment in the provisions of God. He's talking about a disposition of the soul, of the inner person, a, a quietness, a rest, actually, that he's talking about. And where does this quietness or this rest of heart come from? Well, it comes from gratitude. Gratitude for what? Well, gratitude that God has created you for work. If you go back to the very beginning, God created man and woman in Genesis 1, and he gave them work to do. That work, by the way, was before the fall. I know sometimes we tend to think of work as that which happened after the fall. And surely work is corrupted after the fall. But you understand work is not a result of the fall. Work was a gift of God. It was was part of the, the mandate given to humanity to go into the world and work. This is a gift. And and this quiet heart that Paul is talking about here is a manifestation of gratitude for that gift. And especially when there's work to be done, when there are jobs to be had, when there's labor to engage in, where I can labor and feed myself and my family. I, I say, praise God, thank you for this. This is a gift. And it also refers to a contentment that comes from the provisions of the Lord. God provides for us. And the quiet heart looks at that and says, I don't need to strive in my heart. I don't need to be anxious in my heart. I can rest understanding that God is my provider and I can be content. So he says to them to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life. And then he goes on and says to attend to their own business. He says, lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. But what is he referring to here? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 11, we read again, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, like meddlers, people meddling in the affairs of others, looking outside of themselves and, and thinking about what everybody else is doing. 
This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about attending to yourself, attending to your own affairs. 1 Timothy 5.13 addresses women in this regard and says at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. So while we might often think of men at work, Paul addresses women and, and, and points to the labor that you have been given as well. All of us have been work, given work to do for the Lord. None of us ought to be idle. And when idleness sets in, there is this temptation to be a busybody, to be a meddler. Now, there is no such thing as idleness. The heart will busy itself with something. Now, I've been talking about idleness, right? And so there is an idleness that we're talking about. But you understand that there's no real idleness. The heart is at work. The heart is doing something, right? So when you're not doing something, when you're idle, your heart's not idle. Your heart's doing something. Your heart is always doing something. But it won't be something good. It won't be something good. So what are some of the ways that idleness results in in the meddling and in the way we get into the affairs of others in our context? What are some of the ways that this manifests itself for us? May I give two real quickly? One, and I'm not an expert on any of this, but, but the Internet and social media troll. There are all kinds of people sitting around I don't know, maybe in basements. (laughs) With nothing better to do but to read social media posts and tweets. I guess they're not tweets anymore, they're X's. (laughs) Sitting around watching YouTube videos and commenting. Commenting. Now, this is certainly a practice in the world, but I guarantee you this is a practice in the church. There are many who have apparently nothing better to do than to sit around and troll every teacher out there and post comments about what they're teaching. And generally those comments are negative. They're pointing out what's wrong and what's bad and and how this is just horrible. I would suggest to you that this is one form that idleness is taking today. And I would suggest that there are some in the, can I say, blogosphere or social media sphere or YouTube sphere or whatever that is, that actually cultivate that kind of meddling because of the way they address their stuff. Look, brothers and sisters, we have work to do. And this leads us to the second element where I think, or the second way I think this comes out in our culture, where we, in idleness, And I'm not necessarily talking about the idleness that comes because I don't have a job. I'm talking about the idleness that comes when I have a few minutes, when I have some downtime, to turn my heart outside of myself and look at what everybody else is or is not doing. To set myself in this place of evaluating and looking. Are are they doing that? What are they doing? What are they not doing? Is this person, is that person... What, what, what are they doing? Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a legal spirit. This is a spirit that's turned away from the Lord and, and to an inappropriate judgment of your brother 
Are we to judge? We surely are. But we are to judge when there are matters of sin, when there are matters of clear wrongdoing, and in love for a brother who is caught up in any trespass to go and help restore that one. But not for the purpose of sitting around at the dinner table and having conversations about what this group or that group is or is not doing that is right or wrong. Now, I know this to be true because I know it from personal experience. This is something the Lord has chastened me on. It is so easy to evaluate what everybody else is or isn't doing and to have conversations about it. And there's something, brothers and sisters, that feeds the flesh about that. There's something that is wrong, that feeds me in my own flesh, that I would meditate and rehearse all of that. If we are to engage in the lives of others in this way, we are to engage in such a way as to restore a brother, to restore such a one in gentleness and in love. Not to meddle. And then finally, to work with our own hands. To work with our own hands. Attend to your own business. Work with your own hands. And Paul specifically says, work with your own hands. As we've said before, he doesn't say work with somebody else's hands. Work with your hands. Second Thessalonians 3.12, he says, work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Which is just another way of saying, work with your own hands. And eat the bread that you Generate because of your labors. Ephesians 4.28 says this. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Notice what he says in connection to stealing. He must not steal anymore. He must labor. He must perform with his own hands what is good. And why? So that he will have something to share with the one in need. Look, idleness, saying I can't work, being dependent upon the government, being dependent upon a church, is theft. You are stealing. You are not performing with your own hands what is good. And Paul exhorts all of those who are idle in this culture to steal no longer, but to labor and to work with your own hands so that you will have something to share with those who are in need. Labor or love labors. It sacrifices. It shares. It refuses to take advantage of others. It recognizes that dependence due to idleness is theft of another's labor. The gospel calls us to labor in this way by reminding us of the labors of Christ on our behalf. He labored with his life and in his death so that we could rest in him. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to see this morning is that in as much as you labor in the right attitude, in as much as you labor in that quietness of heart, attending to your own business, you are actually living out an aspect of the gospel. You are living out what it you are, you are declaring that you understand what Christ did for you, that he labored for you, and your labor is now a labor of love ultimately given to him and in love for your brothers. So as we conclude, here are a few questions just to think about. One, do you see yourself as a member of God's family and as a brother or sister to those in your church? Is that, is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself as part of this 
new covenant community that is made to be a family. Look to your left, look to your right. Look, look. The people sitting around you, if they are in Christ, are your brothers and sisters. You are family. Do you see yourself that way? Are you striving to excel even more in your love for others? Are you striving to turn away from yourself and look out and in seeking to labor and strive on behalf and in service to others? And finally, is the gospel moving you to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and to work for your own bread so that you can share with others? I pray that the grace of Christ will abound to us. I pray that our hearts will be moved to labor and that we will be moved to labor because of the love of Christ for us and because of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to think together about idleness. But we ask that your grace would abound. Lord, we need your help. We have been instructed and yet we need to be instructed. So Lord, help us. Help us in whatever ways we have been idle and labor, Lord, to grow even more in our love for one another, to turn our hearts to you, to not be tempted to meddle, but to attend our own affairs, to live out our faith before you, to love you, to love one another. Lord, thank you for the love that you have already displayed in this church. Thank you that we are loving one another. Help us to excel still more in gospel love, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. So we have exhortation this morning to be a people that go out from here and work. Work at that which God has called us to do. Work with gratitude in our hearts. Work with contentment. Work while at rest. At rest in the work of Christ. Amen? Go in peace.